Welcome to the Real Estate Syndication Show. Whether you are a seasoned investor or building a new real estate business, this is the show for you. Whitney Sewell talks to top experts in the business. Our goal is to help you master real estate syndication. And now your host, Whitney Sewell. Bedford's cost segregation specializes in generating significant tax savings via their engineering-based studies for commercial real estate clients nationwide. Founded in 2002, Bedford is one of the largest independently owned cost segregation providers in the country with over 14,000 studies completed to date in multiple offices throughout. The most important decision ownership can make when incorporating cost segregation within their real estate portfolio is selecting the right provider. With only 43 certified cost segregation professionals nationwide, Bedford is proud to employ eight of them and takes the quality of their people as seriously as their studies. Every certified cost segregation professional has passed a rigorous test combining knowledge of technical engineering issues, legal tax issues, ethics standards, and requires a strict level of prior work experience to be eligible. Bottom line, not all cost segregation providers are created equal. So be sure to take the decision seriously from the beginning to protect yourself for years to come. Please contact Bedford's Business Development Director, Frank Judici, to learn more. This is your daily real estate syndication show. I'm your host, Whitney Sewell. Today, our guest is Freddie Johnson. Thanks for being on the show, Freddie. Thanks for having me, Whitney. I appreciate it. Yeah, honored to have you on the show. You definitely have a lot of skills and knowledge that we need to know. We need to, we need to know somebody like yourself so we can ask a lot of these questions that we're going to go over today and just to better understand many parts of the, the environment of our industry. But a little about Freddie. He has an interesting path to real estate. He started working for the wealthy investor in mobile home parks, multifamily tax liens, and then started covering banks and REITs at a hedge fund and proprietary trading firm. Recently, he is working as a capital advisor for a New York startup out of New York City, advising clients on how to best finance their commercial real estate investments and sourcing their debt. So we need debt, right? You know, we're buying a you know project that's many, many, many millions. Most of us are going to need some debt on that to make that deal happen. And and with everything that's been happening, we can't get enough information about the current debt markets and different things we need to know about what's happening. So looking forward to the conversation, Freddie. Welcome to the show. You know, you want to highlight anything else just about how you got to where you're at, Freddie, and let's dive in. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, as you mentioned, I worked for an investor out of college, God, many years ago. And it was really interesting to work for someone like him because was really focused on kind of his returns. He didn't really care about the asset as much. And this is back in the early 2000s, so our mid 2000s. And so, you know, assets like mobile home parks and single family rentals, which are really hot right now, back then, people were more, you know, as far as wealthy investors go, they were more interested in large multifamilies or most of the time office properties. So, it was kind of interesting to work for him and then went to grad school and in grad school interned for Brookfield Properties, worked for this guy, Paul Shulman, who couldn't have been more interesting guy to work for. I mean, I would go to these kind of like all hands meetings and he would know, he would go around the room to each department and working for a guy that knew every department pretty much as well as every head of that department was pretty impressive. And so going to go work for Brookfield Properties after grad school, but the market had different plans. This was during the recession and 
I graduated in 09 and my internship ended in 08. And Paul had gotten tapped just then to go be the COO of all U.S. operations, but for Brookfield. And, and so I interviewed with them, but about two weeks after my interview and after I had basically gotten that verbal commitment, Merrill Lynch was absorbed by both. Merrill Lynch was their biggest tenant. Lehman, I think, had already gone under. But, you know, it was just the world was turning upside down, especially for office properties. And Manhattan wasn't doing too great either. So I came back and worked for an equity options group that had a hedge fund and a proprietary trading shop. And the thing about equity options is it's definitely a very high intensity work environment, but I got a job as an analyst for them. And I think what kind of turned me on to them was just one, I had a MBA in finance. And then two, I had spent a little time in the real estate world working at a REIT. They needed someone to cover mortgage REITs, property REITs, banks, basically interest rate driven stocks, which is what I do right now is, is pay attention to the debt markets. So for them, it was kind of an interesting time coming out of the recession and paying attention to things like the Fed dots, if you remember those, or just kind of what the FOMC was doing. And now we're paying attention again to that, right? And so covering property REITs was very interesting. It was a, whereas these stocks are generally very low volatility. You know, back then we were seeing some volatility in them and it was kind of interesting to see how they'd moved. So yeah, it's a great background and understand uh, so much about our industry that we need to know. And and one about, you know, why don't you jump in a little bit to just lending in COVID and post-COVID environment. And let's talk about some of the things maybe that's happened with lending because of COVID and, and what, you know, maybe we can get to even just what you think about, you know, from your own out, you know, about lending, the lending environment as well. Absolutely. So when we were heading into COVID, you saw a ton I would say probably 60, 70, 80% of all banks in the U.S. started tightening their lending standards. So where you see 80% LTV, you would see 75, 70% LTV. Where you used to see 10-year term, you know, with a 30-am, you would see a five-year term. And sometimes you still see that 30-year-am, but, you know, a lot of times they might decrease the amortization as well. So those are two major factors that could you know, affect, you know, it definitely when it comes to the LTV could affect your returns as an investor. But what you also saw was the banks really paying attention to the sponsor or the investor themselves. And so what they would want is they would want to see not only a high net worth, which is, you know, your assets minus your liabilities, but really a lot of liquidity. And it seems kind of, I don't know, it doesn't make a ton of sense, but they want to see a lot of cash in the bank. And that's what they wanted to see during COVID. And who wants to keep cash in the bank earning basically 0%, right? I mean, at least just go get a bond. But no, they wanted to see $100,000 in the bank. And just normal people don't keep $150,000 just laying there in a checking account but they wanted to see that. And then they'll obviously consider, you know, liquidity as equity bonds, even a 401k, which you're going to take a huge hit on if you, you know, get out of that. But really it was cash in the bank was something that they always like to see. And then beyond that, God, what else? I mean, 
you know, you saw a lot of conventional lenders, more of the private debt funds were still going fine with the out of state investors, but out of state investors, you know, if you're a guy from California trying to invest in a multifamily in Indianapolis, they weren't really having it. They're very few and far between. So those were a lot of the things that we saw heading into COVID in terms of your conventional lenders and a lot of the private debt funds and whatnot tightening up on. So, yeah. So really they're there's the way they look at the sponsor changed a lot. They're focusing more on the sponsor than ever before. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. I mean, and we work with lenders. So I work at this at stack source and we can get into that in a little bit, but I mean, right now we'll work with some lending programs that are all about the sponsor. They care. They really just don't even care about the asset. It's just, Hey, if you're a great sponsor and you have money, we'll work with you, you know, and we'll worry about the property later, but you know, let's talk about you first. And you mentioned like having, you know, a hundred thousand, 150,000 liquidity. Could that be spread out between a couple operators or a couple GPs? It can be. Yeah. Good question. So, you know, as far as a sponsor group goes, a lot of times they will definitely consider, you know, if they need, they have to have a certain prereq. Like a lot of times they'll say, you know, we want a net worth of X or they want liquidity of 12 months of, you know, debt service. You could spread that off between, you know, two, three sponsors, you know, that's fine. Yeah. Okay. Now that's good to know. I just thought that might be a good option for the listener who first heard that said, wait a minute, you know, I'm never going to get a loan again. There are ways to make this happen, right? And to get too scared. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's right. And so any other requirements, any other things? While we're talking about that, I'd love to move on to a few other things. Or maybe you can even go into community, I was thinking like community banks versus national banks and how they view that sponsor when they're, you know, they're looking for debt for their you know, commercial real estate deal right now. Absolutely, yeah. So as far as community banks versus the national banks go, I mean, generally national banks are going to be a lot more kind of cookie cutter deals. They're going to stress test the property a lot harder where you might be modeling in 5% vacancy just as a part of your model. They might be modeling in 10, 15 vacancy. They're generally going to have a DCR that's the same prereq as most community banks, but they're definitely going to be stress testing it a lot harder. And one of those things is going to be the vacancy rate. But as far as community banks go, they're going to take a little bit more time to kind of understand the sponsor. If you want to do a redev, which those can get a little hairy, they will actually go into it, look at it with you, you know, get input from the GC, get the construction budget, have their construction manager or director look at it. So there's definitely a lot more room to work with a community bank. Whereas, you know, like, for example, like U.S. Bank, I've heard someone compare them to the Walmart of banks. They're never going to be beat on rate, but you're going to get an LTV that's like 50-60%. And that's just something that's not going to create good returns for whether it's a syndicate investor, whether it's a mom and pop kind of ordeal. So that's kind of the difference between the two. So if you have connections at community banks that you want to utilize, great. And if you have great connections at the larger banks, even better. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Because I, I know us personally, we have 
It's really the, the relationships with some local credit unions and banks that are, you know, one specifically that have really helped us in a big way. And we would obviously prefer agency debt or non-recourse. But we received recently on, I know on one, just a lot better terms, you know, at a local credit union that really allowed us to pay our investors a lot more, you know, as well. Just because, I mean, you think about just, you know, a small change in interest rate over a $30 million or $20 million debt, a very big deal, right? And so, Help us think through, you know, maybe the central banks and the rates affect cap rates. And let's talk about that a little bit as we're thinking through just the entire environment. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, right now, definitely, again, interesting time to be in. As far as the FOMC goes, and we've got a meeting coming up today and tomorrow, so people are going to be paying attention to that. But when you have a low interest rate environment, obviously, it's going to make debt cheaper, and thus it's going to make properties more competitive, basically. So, you know, that's going to affect your cap rates naturally. As far as how that is going to, the tools the FOMC uses, you obviously have your overnight lending rate, the rate that banks lend to each other, that is kind of a target set by the FOMC. You also have QE, which we've seen 10 plus years ago and are seeing again now. And now Jerome Powell has basically said, hey, we're going to have this for another two years. So people now are seeing, and now we have this yield curve that has steepened. And I think on Friday, it kind of probably hit, I think it was like the 30 year hit like 2.4%. And so all we're hearing about now is inflation, right? That's all you see in the media. What is inflation and how does that affect the real estate investor? And so it's kind of like you've seen a lot of people pull out of these lower interest earning securities. They've got to make more on their dollar. The same is true for the lenders. Their dollar today is going to be worth less tomorrow, and thus they have to possibly raise rates. However, we have the other side of that, where you have Powell saying, no, we're going to be buying $120 billion a month in securities, and that is going to keep rates low. And we're going to do that for the next two years. And if, in, and if inflation spikes and we hit 2.5% or even maybe 3%, I'm not sure exactly what he said in terms of the percentage, then that's fine. And inflation is good generally for the economy. The, the fact of the matter is, though, is that we're not going to see inflation like we did in the 1970s, we're not going to see that massive interest rate spike that we saw in the early 80s, uh, 1980, 81, 82. It's just not going to happen. We're living in a different world right now. We have globalization that is completely, I mean, any money that we get from this stimulus, this 1.9 billion stimulus, a lot of it's going to go back to China. It's going to be pushing goods back to us. And we have digitization these days that is going to keep prices relatively low. The competition out there in the market to in this race to zero that we see on, you know, marketplaces like Amazon is kind of taken over. And so I just don't see those massive interest rate spikes. And especially with the Fed buying all these securities over the next 24 months, I don't really see it. And so I think that a lot of news outlets have kind of dialed back all their talk of inflation in the past week or two. But up until then, all you heard were people talking about inflation, inflation, inflation. How's it going to affect us? How's it going to affect our debt? And are we really going to be, you know, scrambling to find quality 
good interest rates. So, yeah. Yeah. No, that's some great information and food for thought, no doubt about it. And I know you mentioned yield curve and inflation. And I just like, take, you know, 30 seconds. What is yield curve? Somebody hasn't heard of that before. Why is that important, you know, to us in real estate? Yeah. So the yield curve, you can just look at it as all of the, I don't know, you can look at the yield curve as the treasury interest rates. So going from anywhere from short term to long term, and obviously on your shorter duration securities, you're going to have less risk and thus less interest that you're going to earn on those. The longer duration ones, your 30 years, you're going to be, you know, we're in a low interest rate environment right now. So two, two and a half percent. And when you have a steepening yield curve, it's generally a sign of good, you know, economic conditions to come. When you have an inverted yield curve and you start to have people kind of dumping their shorter term securities, that is not generally a good sign. So, Mm. and we saw that at the very beginning of COVID, we saw that yield curve kind of turn or invert or turn upside down a little bit. And it was no surprise. I mean, what was coming. So, yeah. Well, you know, on that same thought, but even more in depth, I'd love your opinion about just what you see for the next six to 12 months, just in the real estate market. And then maybe also in the lending as well. Yeah. So in the real estate market, it's next six to 12 months. I think that we're going to see, and we kind of saw this over the past couple of years anyway, but you have more institutional investors that are going to be hunting for cash on cash. So the guys out there, the scrappy, you know, 30 year olds that are trying to invest in, you know, a mobile home park with a couple of partners, the guys that are doing the single family rental portfolios outside of Kansas City, you know, that maybe work at Google, but they make a lot in tech and they want to diversify and they're really interested in real estate. Those institutional investors, they're gunning for those assets now. They're not just all about the office properties in the 250 unit multifamilies. There's been a lot of capital that has been flowing into these different assets. And so the competition for those is going to increase. And that's what I see in the real estate world is just, it's not like an asset has to be sexy to invest in it. It's not, it's just, it's going to be all about the returns from here on out. And people are seeking alpha anywhere. So yeah, that's what I see in the real estate market. As far as the lending market goes, I think that while we have a steepening yield curve, I don't think the interest rates are going to get too out of hand. I think that has indicated that maybe I'll learn different in the next 48 hours with this FOMC meeting going on. But I really just see interest rates staying relatively low, which, you know, can be a double-edged sword for the investor. You know, it's great in terms of debt financing, but then again, it can make finding good quality assets harder to find. So, yeah. Yeah, well, knowing what you know or knowing what you expect, how do you like to see a sponsor or someone in, you know, that's buying large commercial real estate being prepared for a downturn? Yeah, don't overextend yourself and definitely do the due diligence yourself. There's a lot you need to do. I mean, as much homework as you can do on the asset is obviously necessary. And that's kind of a truism, right? But yeah, just ensure that you don't overextend yourself. Make sure your debt coverage, you are fine with it. Stress test the property yourself. Don't just necessarily expect, you know, a lender to tell you what's okay and what's not. You have to be prepared yourself. And so 
that's the one piece of advice that I would say. And I think it's probably fairly obvious to a lot of investors. And if that's it, I don't know if that answers your question, what you're getting at, but you know. Yeah. Yeah. Just any way that you like to see people prepared for a downturn or things they need to be thinking through. Is there buying a property right now, you know, or whether it's from underwriting or, or you know, the lending or, or, but yeah, do your due diligence yourself and don't rely on someone else's for sure is a great tip. Freddie, or did you want to add something else? Oh, I just, I mean, focus on the tenant too. Obviously, that's again kind of part of doing your due diligence. And as far as preparing for a downturn, I guess we can go into that in a minute. But like, it depends if you're talking about like, like your office and your resale tenants. Sometimes, if you can get them to sign a longer term lease, there's a big difference in between a four and a six year lease. There's a big difference in between a nine and 11 year lease, or at least what's left on your lease in terms of the lender, right? Because of those five-year terms, those 10-year terms that they're going to give you. And that's what a lot of people don't realize. And they're just like, oh, no, no, like I'll, you know, like, so they have six years left on their lease right now and they don't have a prepayment penalty and interest rates are low. This might be a good time to kind of lock in a good rate right now, you know, as opposed to waiting you know, a couple of years and maybe the economy is not as great. And then you're trying to, you know, get some more financing when you only have four years left in that lease. Or in a lot of times, if it's a big lease, the tenant will kind of know your situation and they'll use it against you. So that's just... No, that's some great advice. I appreciate you elaborating on that. And unfortunately, we got to move to a few final questions, though. What about any daily habits that you have, Freddie, that you are disciplined about that have helped you achieve success? Yeah, so I guess this one kind of matter, like, if you're more of a morning person or a night person. But for me, I'm probably more of a morning person. And I really generally don't like to look, I don't get on the Slack channels. And I don't get on email until I've completed kind of that one hard task for the day that has been removed from email, that has been removed from Slack. That just is like, whether it's a financial analysis that I need to do or some sort of complex model for a client that I need to get out, whatever it is, I want to get that done first because after that, everything seems to be a lot easier. So we live in a world with a ton of distraction right now. Social media, email, we've seen our phones have become highly addictive. So you have to be kind of disciplined about, you know, what's coming at you if you really want to get some stuff done. And so pick your times of the day where you're going to kind of shut out, shut out some of those distractions, get something done, and then move on to those. Great advice. What's the number one thing that's contributed to your success? Just wanting to keep learning. If you're, I think there was a saying, it was like, you don't grow old and, until you want to stop learning or something along those lines. I don't know. I don't know exactly what it was, but it just wanting, just staying hungry, staying curious, and just trying to absorb everything and knowing when to shut your mouth and keep your ears open and then knowing when to open your mouth and, and contribute. So, yeah. How do you like to give back? So I actually coach youth sports. So I'm in the northern suburbs of Chicago. Hockey's big up here. I love to coach hockey. I think it's a great way to give back. And and I think that youth sports in general are great for life lessons. Real estate's a competitive 
kind of a competitive, gritty sector, I've actually learned lessons in being a part of a team that seem maybe kind of trite, but they also, you know, do apply to the real world and the working environment. So, yeah. Awesome. Well, Freddie, it's been a pleasure to get to know you and have you on the show. I'd love to have you back on the show in the future if you're open to it and us talk about some more specific things and dive into a few more things that I know you are an expert in. And I think that'd be very valuable for the listener also. But grateful for, I mean, just talking through debt markets a little bit and and just different lending standards that are changing or have changed and even the focus on the sponsor and and some different things we talked about that even yield curve, inflation, different things that we need to be aware of and understand what they are in our industry for sure. But tell the listeners how they can get in touch with you and learn more about you. Absolutely. Yeah. No, thank you. So they can email me always, freddy at stacksource.com. That's F-R-E-D-D-Y at stacksource. And give me a call. I'll give out my phone number too, 847-514-1795. Feel free to give me a shout anytime. And if you want to talk about the financing side of things. Thank you for listening to the Real Estate Syndication Show, brought to you by LifeBridge Capital. LifeBridge Capital works with investors nationwide to invest in real estate, while also donating 50% of its profits to assist parents who are committing to adoption. LifeBridge Capital, making a difference, one investor and one child at a time. Connect online at www.lifebridgecapital.com for free material and videos to further your success.